feel sad when the holidays are over every year yes when you're when you're waiting all year for something wonderful to come and then the holiday is over and then you have to return to regular reality yeah i definitely feel that way when it comes to franco february it's over already it's uh about to be here in about an hour or so i don't know if i'm ready to say goodbye yet uh, I'm certainly not, but here we are. Honestly, it's up to us in our hearts to make every day part of Franco-February. Yeah. No, yeah, I would agree with that. It's a joy you have to carry with you all year long. A little flame deep in your soul that you can't let die. Exactly. That's the way that we think here on the Raincoat Report. And in fact, welcome to the Raincoat Report. This is Boss here with Jeremy. Hello, welcome again to the Raincoat Report with Boss and Jeremy. (laughs) This week we are talking about Jess Franco one more time. As we finish up Franco February talking about She Killed in Ecstasy from 1971. Oh. Starring Soledad Miranda in one of uh, her handful of roles for Jess Franco. This is that period where she was really becoming his muse. He was really into her being in his films and had a lot of plans for her. Um, This was made immediately after Vampiros Lesbos, which we've recently covered on this, or previously covered on this podcast, not so recently. It's been a year. Yes. (laughs) What a year it's been. Um, This one was made with most of the same crew. Yeah. As Vampiros Lesbos. Uh, most of the same soundtrack composers, although this one has kind of a different feel to it. Yeah, it's um, the album that I guess they put out that's called Vampiros Lesbos has a still from this. Oh, okay. Which I thought was strange at first because I don't remember that. I didn't remember that shot from Vampiros Lesbos, but yeah. it makes sense now. Yeah, the uh, cover of Stephen Thrower's first book about Jess Franco, Murderous Passions, Mm -hmm. is a still from this movie. I'm just going to hold it up. It's like show and tell. Yeah, that's the one. That's, I think, pretty much the same one. It's a good shot. Yeah, it is a good shot. This film has a lot of good shots. It does. It's uh, very good cinematography here. You can tell that Jess is really inspired at this point. Um, it's a bit less sexual than something like Vampiros Lesbos, yeah. um, but it's got a lot going on for it. Yeah, and I would say sex is um, the primary driver of a lot of the plot, too, even if it's yeah. not very explicit. So, Yeah, it's still a quite an erotic ride. Yeah, I would say, I think we just called it an erotic thriller. Yeah, that's a good way to describe yeah, it. it's got got thrills and chills it does it's also got a few familiar faces here uh we have 
Howard Vernon, mm-hmm. who was in uh, Countess Perverse, and maybe one or two of the other ones that we've covered. I don't know. Uh, he, he's been in a lot of Jess's movies, that being the more important point. Uh, we also have Paul Mueller, who's been in a lot of Jess's movies. I don't know if he was in any of the ones we've covered on the show yet. Well, Paul Vernon's talking butt. Talking <laughs> ass. That was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we have Jess Franco himself in one of the primary roles. Yes. And uh, I think he's always fun to see in his movies. He's usually pretty good at, at being a weirdo. Mm-hmm. And that's lovely. Yeah, here he's just a little nerdy doctor. (laughs) Yeah, this is a tale of revenge. Uh, Stephen Thrower notes that in a lot of ways it's a reimagining of his earlier film, The Diabolical Dr. Z, which is one that I still haven't seen yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's a uh, story of revenge killing. Uh, and in this case, it's uh, really about the politics of the medical community yes, <laughs> and uh, the uh, various rivalries involved and some moral dilemmas. And sometimes people get their medical licenses suspended. But while we're supposed to sympathize with those affected by that, there's also the question of whether or not they were doing the right thing anyway. Yes. <laughs> but... Regardless of that, we get to see uh, some killing in ecstasy. Yes, this film tackles many thorny issues in the medical community. Yes, when does a life begin? When does a life end? Ooh. When you you watch this film. (laughs) No, uh, when the screaming starts. Oh, yeah. That's when a life ends. (laughs) And begins. I'm sorry, those and hailed so much bag dust. <laughs> uh, you said you were going to talk politics this week. Oh yeah, I am because we've got a new, a new Instagram follower. Uh, what's his name? Oh, okay. Oh yeah, our new follower on Instagram is Buck Forty Five Fighting, which. Uh, <laughs> Do a little word puzzle at home and figure out <laughs> what that is. So I'm gonna say, you know, I I don't know about this Brandon guy. <laughs> I was trying to get over here, and all the roads are closed. They're all being worked on. Oh yeah. And it's um it's his fault. <laughs> he gave everyone all that money to close down the roads. <laughs> And now I can't get around town in less than half an hour. <laughs> I appreciate that we now live in the realm where you can just put any old crazy rant on the internet. And as long as you're really like committed to it, uh, people are going to take you seriously, regardless of how much truth there is in it. They should take me seriously. Go out and steal a bunch of those uh, safety cones. <laughs> <laughs> They're free if no one catches you. (laughs) I guess really anything you steal is free if no one catches you. So that's just a general endorsement for stealing. (laughs) So yeah. The Um, raincoat report seal of approval. Yeah. Theft. Yeah. It's the one thing we endorse. Well, theft when you don't get caught. Yeah. That's important. We don't endorse theft if you've gotten caught. Yeah, if you've gotten caught, you're on your own. (laughs) 
Yeah, in fact, we're going to just say that we support theft, but if you get caught, we're going to say that we never supported theft, ever, in any form. Yeah, don't try to say that we did. Just legally speaking, we don't support theft, but like under the raincoat, come join me. Come join me under my raincoat, and I will tell you that theft is pretty cool. I bet it's humid in there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Under the humid raincoat. Yeah. I think your political rant topped mine. (laughs) I was just mad about them closing the streets, but you want them to steal the raincoat right off your body. I mean, if they're going to steal the election... We might as well steal some road Wait. cones. Yeah. Wait, who stole the election? The Grinch stole the election? The Grinch who stole the election? The Grinch who stole the election. Um, <laughs> so no, it was W. He stole the election. W. Brandon. W sideways is a B. B for Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, those are pol- that's my politics now. Oh, uh, I, I was at a gas station, yeah. and the gas price was too damn high. <laughs> but someone had put one of those. I did this stickers with Biden on it on the pump. Oh, but it had fallen off and was now just stuck to the ground. Oh, and, yeah. I didn't know that that was a thing. Yeah, you well, I. They're not very well-made stickers. <laughs> just the elements are enough to take them out, yeah, really. Yeah, really just like... And they're they're on gas pumps. They're under the things. They're not getting, like, wet constantly. They're just poorly... You know what? I take back everything I said. Uh, I swear my full allegiance to the president because he is stronger than the wind and the rain. <laughs> Uh, Well, that's as good a point as any. Let's go ahead and take a break, (laughs) and then we'll be back to talk about She Killed in Ecstasy. Okay. You can't keep saying funny things in between our recording sessions. Sorry. You have to wait until the mics are hot again. Oh, okay. Well, don't turn them off. And they'd stay hot. I guess so. They'd overheat. Yeah, they would. (laughs) Well, uh, we're back on the raincoat report. What if you left the microphones on after we got done podcasting? And then you came back and... For some reason, the audio recorded, even though you would probably take the recorder with you. But then you came back, and there were other voices on here, and they were ghosts. I think that that would be great, because what I would do is I would take that footage, or that uh, audio, audio recording, yeah, and then I would just put that on Patreon. What if it was just <laughs> ghosts who were just talking about the most boring shit? Um, like, what if you just caught, like, the the dinner conversation of the people that 
died here. Uh, I would. You should still put it on Patreon. I think what I would do is I would just put it in my back pocket, and if something happened where we weren't going to get our Patreon episode done in time, you I would just have that in the chamber and be like, "Hey, guys, we got ghost talk here." Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> Uh, so if you subscribe to our podcast, maybe one week we'll get lazy and put up a bunch of ghosts talking about their day. Ghost work. <laughs> uh, so she killed in ecstasy. If I had to work as a ghost, I would kill myself. Would working as a ghost be worse than working at the dollar store? It would be... Yes. I'm dead. And I'm, it's like retirement. I'm not supposed to be working anymore. Oh, yeah. I guess so. Uh, do I, some ghosts have jobs and others don't, or do they all have to have jobs? Well, philosophically, I believe that they should all have to have jobs, but <laughs> there's a ghost welfare state that really uh, it just lets you mooch. <laughs> oh, yeah. So... Let's talk about you killed in ecstasy. Okay. <laughs> not about whether or not you have to pay taxes when you're dead. I'm happy that we got to get very political this episode and that our views are very clear and spelled out for the listeners. Yeah. <laughs> Taking some hard stances. <laughs> Joe Biden, stronger than the wind and the rain. Ghosts are, some of them are freeloaders and they shouldn't be allowed to be. Yeah. And I think you believe in something, but. I'm not really sure what. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I forget by now. All right. Well, let's go. All right. So She Killed in Ecstasy opens with some shots of fetuses in jars uh, with a very unfitting jazzy soundtrack that kicks in. Progressive jazz sounds. Yeah. Like uh, Vampiros Lesbos had this really weird space rock feel to a lot of it. Mm Mm-hmm. And this one, even though it's by the same composers, they went full uh, high-tempo jazz with most of it. Yeah. And it doesn't really fit with the film's thematics at all. It doesn't, but it's there's banger after banger. Like, all the tracks are great, so yeah. it's fine. Yeah, I'm not saying that they're bad at all. It's just no. a weird tone for the film. Yeah, it adds a sort of levity that the film doesn't really have. <laughs> right. As the yeah, as the credits go, we have our jazzy soundtrack and a bunch of fetuses in jars. Uh, the writer and director credit is for Frank Holman for Jess Franco. Oh yeah. Uh, so that's a lot of fun. We see Mrs. Johnson descending the steps of a wild house. This is the house known as Xanadu, which we also caught in Vampiros Lesbos. Yes, and Countess Perverse. Or no, it wasn't in Vampiros Lesbos. It was in Countess Perverse. Okay. Yeah, I think you're right. I feel like the staircase around it has been in more films. It perhaps has. But not necessarily the house itself. But yes, this is a house that we know and love. As she's descending the steps, we can see Jess's hair blowing in the wind and shadow. uh, As he's looking down on her. He's casting a shadow. Again, Mrs. Johnson is Soledad Miranda's character, and she comes up to the shoreline and is talking in narration. She says, I miss you. Our time together was short, only two years. I'll never forget our time together. You gave me more than I dreamed of. So, 
It's at this point that we get some flashbacks to her relationship. Uh, we get some shots of her in a wedding dress and uh, Dr. Johnson, her husband, in a tuxedo and some church shots. We then see Mrs. Johnson approaching Dr. Johnson, who asks if she's happy. She says yes, and they make out, and they get on a couch together. We get some shots of them uh, canoodling together through some sort of opening. It's a very uh, voyeuristic shot again from Jess here. Um, it's like between some red curtain or something. Yeah. Dr. Johnson says... He's going to go in front of the medical council soon, and he's curious what these bigots, as he puts them, th are going to think of his work. He notes they can't reject it. They have to support him. Mrs. Johnson tells him not to get excited, and they cut from there to his lab. It's at this point that you get a good look at the top she's wearing, and it's like three it's metal like, medallions, two of which are covering her boobs. Yeah, they're like three like leaves of metal that, yeah, just kind of... Two are covering cover her, her boobs, and then one's dangling in between of, them. Yeah, kind of like over her stomach. It's very, uh, like, Warcraft fantasy armor. Right. Um, it's an odd look, but um, I like it. It's... It's something, for sure. He's doing bad things in his lab. He's making abominations. Yeah, he is. Uh, he says that this is the result of my research, as he's pointing at a fetus in a jar. He explains that human and animal hormones are injected into the fetuses to make revolutionary changes. He says that it adds resistance to cancer, heart disease, physical and mental decline... We then cut from that to a shot of an ashtray with two burning cigarettes in it. We get a shot of them uh, doing it in the shadows. They're naked and uh, making out. And it's all kind of just silhouettes that we're seeing because it's dark in there. She notes that their love was passionate. And she knew that his work was very important and noted that his fate was in the hands of just a few people, that being the medical council. It's a really good shot here, though, yes. of them in, in silhouette doing it. Yeah. We cut to a beach, and it's really crowded, and some shots of seaside hotels. And we cut from there to the medical council, which includes Jess Franco as uh, Dr. Donan, it includes Paul Mueller as Dr. Houston, Howard Vernon as Professor Jonathan Walker, mm -hmm. and Eva Stromberg as Dr. Crawford, Excellent. a woman of the group. Mm -hmm. And so they're talking to Dr. Johnson, and Dr. Donan, Jess's character, says, His experiments are inhumane. Dr. Johnson argues back, but the other doctors agree with Dr. Donan. They say that they're going to ask the medical board to make sure he doesn't practice medicine anymore. Dr. Crawford notes that he's denied these embryos a chance at life, a criminal act and blasphemy. I told you. So this is where we dig into some real political uh, stuff. Yeah. He's basically just doing like stem cell research, it seems like. 
Something like that, Something yeah. like that. A more uh, fantastical version. Right. Just Franco understands. But, uh, yeah, I kind of get it. It's, um, he's, uh, it's, it's about abortion. In a way. Of. In a way. It's about these embryos aren't getting a chance at life. Yeah, I have doubts that Jess was really trying to, like, make a statement in any way with this. Yeah, no. I think he just brought it in as something weird. Yeah, just some scientific goo-gaws. Uh, I don't know. If anything, he might be making a statement just about Spain in particular. That could the, be. His home country, quite conservative still, even during this time, even with Franco gone. I think abortion was probably still... Big no, no, the other Franco. Right. Yeah, I think abortion was still probably frowned upon, and uh, I'm sure stuff like this is still... I know, at least in the U.S., a lot of people are still against this kind of research anyway. Right. So... It's it's still a hot topic today. It's a hot topic but today. But especially at this point where this is where the Generalissimo Franco is still in power at this okay. point. He didn't... What, 74 or so, I think he... Somewhere like mid seventies. Yeah. yeah, this was shot in seventy. So, okay, I was thinking he was gone a couple of years earlier for some reason, but yeah, yeah, you're right. He was still hanging around until like the first Star Wars came out. <laughs> <laughs> Were those two things related? Yeah, um, he saw that and realized that what he had been doing was bad. <laughs> he saw. He was like. A, He's like, I can't be a Darth Vader. I need to be more of a Luke. So he abdicated. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. It's a powerful film. Well, here, Dr. Johnson notes that he believes that all that matters is helping people, regardless of any morals. Dr. Donan tells him to take his papers and burn them. But as he says that, he then rips the papers and waves them around, uh very violently yeah he's getting them charged up for burning johnson is told again to stop his experiments at once he comes home however to find that his lab has already been destroyed and his wife is thrown on the floor with a cut above her eye science council goons don't mess around no she says that they came in raging like madmen and she tried to stop them but to no avail they said that they were going to kill him as well. Uh, he picks up Mrs. Johnson, his wife, and carries her to the bedroom, though she asks him to put her down and says not to worry about her as she walks into the other room. Dr. Johnson then paces around his lab, examining the damage, which, if you look at what's on the floor, it seems to be a lot less than what was on his shelves to begin with. Because mm -hmm. his shelves were loaded, and there's probably like a three-foot area of debris on the floor. We see him sitting, and then in a voiceover, we hear replaying the medical council members calling him an animal and uh, telling him to stop his research and that he's going to be expelled, calling him a criminal. And so he thrashes around on the couch, replaying those moments over and over again. He starts to attack the table. He then says, I am an animal, they're right. In the other room, Mrs. Johnson, and to be clear, Soledad Miranda's character, Mrs. Johnson, is never given a first name. That is her credit, Mrs. Johnson. Well, that's how it was back then. You just, oh, yeah. You just You're be right. like Mrs. Albert Johnson. 
That's right. That's your whole identity. Not only do you have to take his last name, but also his first name. And his dick. (laughs) Well, Mrs. Johnson's on the phone calling Dr. Houston, who, uh, based on what happens later in the film, I assume that they've never met uh, in person, but Mm -hmm. she knows at least enough to call him. Yeah. And she asks him to come over and talk to her husband. Because she's worried because, well, her husband is, as she says, raging like a madman. Yeah, he's flipping out. Uh, But Dr. Houston's not interested in helping. And we hear Johnson in the other room screaming and smashing stuff. Mm -hmm. And she ends up hanging up the phone, clearly getting no help from Dr. Houston. And she makes this whole phone call on a sheer black nighty. Should be said. You can see her nipples the whole time. That's important. They're erect with fear. (laughs) We cut to a shot of the sea. We hear her in narration again. She says she took him away from the city. We went to a small island where uh, there's a house above the clouds. And that is Xanadu, the house from Countess Perverse. Mm -hmm. We then see Dr. Johnson laying in bed. He's uh, fully dressed in his khakis and a dress shirt, staring at the ceiling. Mrs. Johnson comes in. She's wearing this purple uh, wrap that she wears throughout the film, kind of a cape. Yeah. Uh, Somewhere in between a cape and a blanket, really. She sits down next to him on the bed, and she's obviously deeply concerned. She tries to talk to him, but he doesn't respond, and she cries. He says, it's no crime, repeatedly, as she's crying. We cut to a shot of a tall building, and we see... The medical council there. Professor Walker, Howard Vernon's character, Mm -hmm. he's talking at a podium while Dr. Houston sneaks into the room. We also see Mrs. Johnson, who's sitting in the audience watching with a scowl on her face. Something that Stephen Thrower talked about uh, in his book and in the special features on this Blu-ray release, he talks about Mm -hmm. how Soledad Miranda had a very good grasp of how to communicate things with her eyes and her facial expressions oh yeah definitely and that's something that really carries this film higher than it would otherwise be if anybody else was in this part or at least if certain people were in this part she's very good at doing like the nostril flare she can really she can really uh work those holes (laughs) (laughs) and really that's the most important thing is working those holes yeah But uh, this is a good example of that because, you know, she doesn't have any dialogue in the scene, but we see her reacting to what's being said and uh, expressing her disgust just facially. Dr. Walker is at the podium, or Professor Walker, is at the podium talking about charlatans and unscrupulous criminals in the medical community and how they must be stopped from their experiments We get a close-up look of Mrs. Johnson as she's watching, a close-up on her eyes. The next person starts talking, which we later see is Dr. Donan, Jess Franco's character, and he goes on specifically bringing up Dr. Johnson's experiments needing to be stopped. They're arguing there that he should have his medical license revoked, more or less. Mm -hmm. It's not said, but that is the implication. Mrs. Johnson storms off. On her way out, she's stopped by an inspector who notes that he met her 
uh, recently, just after her husband's lab was destroyed. She says if he wants to help, he can stop the people that destroyed her husband's life. He says, I might just do that, and smiles and walks away. That's about most of what he does in this film. Yeah, he is like a day late and a dollar short the entire time. Yeah, he's, um... <laughs> I, we'll get to it. <laughs> Back to the council meeting, Dr. Donan's talking more. He talks about his disgust of the crimes against science. We then see the inspector talk to Dr. Houston. He asks if he can smoke there, and he says no. And he says, thanks, Dr. Houston. Dr. Houston asks how the inspector knows his name. He says it's not important. We cut back to Dr. Johnson in bed. The negative words of the medical counsel are looping in his head more. Mrs. Johnson joins him in bed again. He says he wants to help people and asks why they won't let him. Mrs. Johnson kisses his face and asks if he can hear her. He doesn't respond. She kisses his face a few more times and says she just wants to help him. She says she loves him a few times as he continues to stare off. She opens his shirt and kisses down his chest. She rubs her face on the crotch of his pants. He starts talking about being treated like a criminal. She cries out that she can't take it anymore as she lays back. Uh, we see her exposed chest. She's really just wearing that uh, cape wrap thing. Yeah, um... My notes say that unless she's dressed like a Warhammer character, she is dressed like Morticia Adams. <laughs> um, I think this is the, about the point when I notice that whatever bed this is is just like a child-sized mattress. It's maybe like a twin bed or smaller. <laughs> um, very strange. It is pretty strange. Um, I didn't know why he was on this. Maybe this is because he thinks he's an animal. He sleeps on a, like a dog-sized bed now. <laughs> <laughs> they made me an animal and so i became one <laughs> and he's just curled up on a little uh mattress for a dog <laughs> we get some more shots outside of the shore in the house and see dr johnson's eyes open he hears more overdubbed audio of the doctors criticizing him he sits up and buries his face in his hands for a moment before climbing out. He looks up and seemingly has an idea. There's this weird jazz music with sitar playing here. Yeah. And, uh, which is interesting for the scene. He goes to a mirror and then grabs a straight razor and drops his wrist out of the frame. Uh, but he seems to be doing something with it. And sure enough, we see Mrs. Johnson wake up. She asks where he is and then goes and finds him laying on the edge of the bathtub, bleeding out. She cries out, and then we cut back to her looking out at the sea like she was at the beginning. In narration, she says she's searching for him. He left her without a word. How will I live without you? I can't do it without taking revenge on your killers. The price for our destroyed lives can only be death. Yes. At long last, she can begin to kill in ecstasy. Indeed. So we cut from that to a bunch of uh, S&M drawings that are apparently lining this, like, bar or, or lounge. Yeah, they're more liberated in Europe. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. They're yeah. pretty cool. 
It's pretty, it's pretty tight. There's a voice we hear, which is uh, the voice of Professor Walker. He's talking about how the world changes over time and people are becoming more cruel. And then he starts going on about the youth, the young people. They're becoming militant. They're getting on drugs. He's talking to some woman at the bar while Mrs. Johnson's on the other side of the room listening and glancing at him. He looks back at her a few times, and the woman that Professor Walker is talking to leaves. And so Mrs. Johnson and Professor Walker exchange a few more glances. Professor Walker then approaches and asks if he's met her before. He lists places where he might have met her, and she says no to all of them. So this is one of those things where maybe she's met him like once before, but he just can't place it. Mm-hmm. He introduces himself as Professor Walker, and she says she knows who he is, and he offers her a drink. She knows that the waiter left with a woman a while ago, taking her back to his room. She asks him where he's staying, and he notes in a hotel nearby. He suggests that maybe they could have a drink at his hotel. She tells him that it'll cost him, but uh, he's okay with paying for her company. So we then see Professor Walker leading Mrs. Johnson into the lounge of his hotel. She notes how nice it is, and there is some cool woodwork on the walls and stuff. Big mm-hmm. and fancy. Yeah, it's um, it's Franco. He gets good locations. Yeah. <laughs> they uh, walk into the hotel room, and after they shut the door, she kisses him. He stops her and says he doesn't like that. So he sits down on the bed and tells her to get undressed. She asks if he wants to help her, and he doesn't respond, so she walks over to a mirror and starts to undress. He gets up and starts to undress himself and lays back down in the bed. She, at this point, is wearing her purple wrap along with uh, some thigh highs, a garter belt, and some red panties. He calls her over to the bed, and she lays down. He tells her to hold on, and uh, he holds his hands in front of him to pray briefly. And then he lays down and tells her she has to be degrading to him, to swear at him. She says, yes, because you're impotent. Yeah, she she picked an easy first target. I'll say that. (laughs) She uh, calls him a swine and says that she hates him. She says she'll kill him, and she slaps him, and he says, hit me more. She then pulls a knife from her garter belt and slashes his throat. Yeah. Um, I'm glad in this one, unlike in Cries of Pleasure, I'm sure he had more money on this one. I'm glad there's some blood. Yeah. <laughs> even if it's uh, pretty fake. I'm not sure if it's in this kill or another one where you like, she squeezes something, you can definitely see like the blood spurt like out of the blade. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I didn't catch that wherever yeah. it was. It was a... Uh, it's appreciated. I like that there was some fake blood. Yeah. Like, that I'm not being asked to believe that someone's slit throat would produce nothing. Right. <laughs> she uh, pulls the blanket off of him, and we see his cock for a moment, but the camera pans away as she plunges the knife forward. Uh, apparently, although it's not shown, she slashes his junk. But we do get a shot of the bloody aftermath. We do. Um, and she places a note on him, and um, at first I was like... This is like a fake suicide note. No one's going to believe that he destroyed his genitals and then cut his throat. <laughs> we 
cut to Dr. Donan, Jess's character, mm-hmm. reading a paper in bed. He hears something and he opens the door just to see Mrs. Johnson leaving uh, Professor Walker's room. Apparently, he was staying just across the hall from Professor Walker. We see her leaving the hotel and running away, but Dr. Donan knocks on Professor Walker's room and doesn't get an answer. He finally opens the door and finds Professor Walker's body. We cut to a shot of a coastline, and Dr. Houston is there checking his watch, and then he looks through the little tourist telescope. It's at that point that Dr. Crawford, the uh, female doctor of the group, shows up. Dr. Houston says he didn't know that she was coming, and she notes that Dr. Donan sent her a letter. Houston says he got a letter, too, and says it was quite mysterious. He was told not to let anyone follow him. It's at that point that Dr. Donan shows up and tells them that Professor Walker was killed last night, uh, and he had found the body. He also notes that there was a girl leaving his room. He describes her as a girl you wouldn't normally bring back. She was... She was dark-haired, vulgar, just how you imagine a prostitute. (laughs) He says it was a gruesome night. His throat was cut and his penis was severed. Oh, no. They note that that's horrible, and Donan confirms that he had called the police, but he also mentions the note. It says, this was the first. There will be three more, and it's signed J. They note that it's J like Johnson, but Dr. Johnson's dead. We then see Dr. Crawford stand and play some notes on an organ elsewhere. She looks and sees a woman reading in a lounge that she's at. Mm-hmm. She approaches her. This is Mrs. Johnson in a blonde wig. Yes. They start chit-chatting about the book that she was reading, and uh, Mrs. Crawford walks away after a few moments, but then circles around the room from the outside, peeking in at Mrs. Johnson more. Then she knocks on the window to get Mrs. Johnson's attention. She notes that there are red flamingos out there. Mrs. Johnson joins her outside. She notes that she's not from there and she's bored. She's just been reading. She also tells Dr. Crawford that she's from Austria. Dr. Crawford says she's bored too and asks if Mrs. Johnson has more books. Mrs. Johnson says that she could come to her room and borrow some if she wants. She mentions she's in exile there, so normally no one's even at her home. We see them walk into Mrs. Johnson's place. She asks Dr. Crawford if she wants to look at her books, and Crawford says she's in no hurry. So uh, Mrs. Johnson brings her a drink of sherry. Dr. Crawford notes the art in the room, which Mrs. Johnson says is hers. Dr. Crawford says it's masculine, and Johnson says it's not masculine, it's just individual. (laughs) Dr. Crawford says she doesn't like Sherry, but when she's with Mrs. Johnson, it's good. They talk more art, and Mrs. Johnson lays on the carpet. Dr. Crawford crawls towards her and touches Mrs. Johnson's face and starts to rub her body. Dr. Crawford tells her she's beautiful and then quickly starts to reach into her pants. We get a cutaway to Mrs. Johnson making out with her husband on the couch, and then we cut back to Mrs. Johnson and Crawford. Yes. Uh, she Each time that she has one of these encounters, she has flashbacks to her and her husband. 
we see them walk into a bedroom and then we get this long shot that's kind of far away but it's an interesting framing of the scene Dr. Crawford undresses Mrs. Johnson first, and then uh, Dr. Crawford herself undresses, and they start to make out in the bed. We get some more close-up shots of Mrs. Johnson kissing all over Dr. Crawford's breasts. Mrs. Johnson then grabs these, <laughs> this plastic inflatable pillow and smothers Dr. Crawford with it over a period of about a minute. Yeah, it seems like it would take a while to smother someone to death with this object. Yeah, the problem is that like it, it would be really hard to create a seal on their face where they couldn't breathe. Yeah, because it's kind of like trying to smother someone with basically a beach ball. Right. Um, um, it is, though, a pretty cool shot because you can see through the pillow. Yeah. And you can see her face as it's getting smashed and yeah. she's theoretically being smothered. So I think you can trade off that realism for the shot and... We shouldn't even worry about it. I think it is a very cool shot. But, uh, but in addition to the transparent part in the middle, it's mostly a zebra pattern, which yeah. is kind of cool, too. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty neat little object. Um, it's a creative kill. I'll give it that. Yeah. Um, it's a bit of an unwieldy murder weapon, but I think if you were in a state of, let's say, ecstasy, perhaps, right. you could kill with it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> she leaves a note, and this one says, you are the second pig to die. That's pretty cool. She's doing some, like, Manson family stuff now. Right. We get some exterior shots of her place, and we see Mrs. Johnson approach Dr. Johnson in bed. Dr. Johnson's corpse, by the way, is just laying in their bed. Yeah. Um, this reminds me of a, a pretty recent development in the world of cults. Oh, yeah? There was that, uh, you might have seen a little bit of it. Uh, we were watching some Dr. Phil, and there's this character uh, who called herself Mother God. Oh, Who was just yeah. sort of an alcoholic who abused her, like, live-in followers and mm -hmm. pretended to be, like, some sort of divine being. But she died pretty recently, and when, like, authorities finally found her, I think they were, were like, worshipping, like, her mummified body, basically. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Um, so it's exciting. <laughs> the world we live in is just like a Jess Franco film. Well, in the case of the Johnsons, Mrs. Johnson tells him to sleep tight. No one will disturb your sleep now. Professor Walker is dead and the woman won't bother you now. She demands he respond. And of course he doesn't on account of being dead. So she cries at his bedside, looking at him. Then we cut to a church service, and Mrs. Johnson's there in black. There are a lot of Jess Franco shots of the decor and candle flames and stuff. Mm -hmm. But we also see Dr. Houston is there by the candles. Mrs. Johnson, crying, gets out of her seat and approaches the candles just feet from Dr. Houston, and then she walks out of the room as the priest is talking. Dr. Houston approaches her, asking if she's okay and if there's anything he can do. She mentions she got married in this church, and this is the first time she's been back. He notes she shouldn't be so sad over that sort of memory. She then tells him that her husband is very ill as she's crying. He says, these days nearly any disease can be cured. He's a doctor, and maybe he can help. He introduces himself as Dr. Houston, but she... Dr. Franklin leaves. Houston. Yes. 
Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> Dr. Frankenstein Houston. Yeah, I just say, you say it, you mash it all together. He's Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> we see Dr. Houston at a table talking to Dr. Donan. He's telling him about this woman that he saw. He then says that he was certain that it was Dr. Johnson's wife. Just as he says that, Mrs. Johnson sits at the next table over. She doesn't acknowledge him, but Donan says, that woman does look familiar. Donan then approaches the host at the restaurant and asks him who that woman is, but as they turn to look at that woman, she's gone. Yeah, I was... Did Dr. Houston not notice her get up and leave either? Uh, I guess not. She just vanished. She just jumped out the window. (laughs) (laughs) We then cut to Dr. Houston talking to the inspector from earlier. He says after the deaths of Crawford and Walker, he thinks he's next. He explains to the inspector that they rejected the research of Dr. Johnson and barred him from practicing. The inspector says, don't worry about it. No one's going to (laughs) die. Dr. Johnson's dead and he can't be hunting ghosts. So the inspector says that he's there for him, but only if he's in real danger. Yeah. He's it's like the real cops. Yeah. He we, will show up after you've been murdered. Right. We see Dr. Houston arriving at his hotel. He sits in the lounge on a couch with his paper. And then we get an awesome shot where we see a mirror as he's sitting on the couch. And in the mirror, we see... Mrs. Johnson sit down on a couch across the room. Yeah, it's a very cool shot. I like it a lot. She's looking forward at him, and he glances at her a few times and seems a bit upset. He then stands up, and she asks if he has a light. He demands that she leaves him alone, and he walks away. She gets up off the couch and walks forward, looking off screen in the direction he walked before walking away herself. We then see him walking outside, and he's walking outside this restaurant that has these, like, weird bubble-out windows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of cool architecture, and, uh, was this, I know this was, like, a German-Spanish production. Do you know if any of it was filmed in, like, Germany, or was it all... I feel like this was probably Mostly in Spain, in Spain. Okay. but I don't know for sure. Gotcha. Um, we see that she is following him still, and, uh... She follows him into the restaurant and leans forward and asks if he has a light, and he finally says yes and lights her cigarette. She tries to start conversation with him, but he again gets upset and says she has to leave him alone, and he leaves. She follows him more, and we get this exterior shot of this building with glass windows Mm -hmm. across it, and so we get this exterior shot of them climbing steps with her following him up this building. Yeah, I like this whole sequence a lot. It's got a kind of like a a Hitchcock sort of vibe to it. Right. It's very uh, tense uh, chase sequence. Yeah. It's all done at, at a walking pace. He gets to his room and turns on the light, and when he does, she's there, laying on his bed in a blonde wig, uh, in lingerie. Yeah, I don't know how she got... I don't know how this happened. She has supernatural powers. (laughs) Yes. He yells at her for following him, and she rolls over onto her chest on the bed. 
He sits at the edge of the bed and says that he's scared, and she asks why. He says he doesn't know why, and she says he shouldn't be afraid of a woman, and asks him if she looks like a killer. She then sits up and kisses him, and we get a flashback to her kissing her husband, and then back to her with Dr. Houston. He gets on top of her and makes out with her and starts to kiss down her chest and exposes her breasts. We get more cutaways to her with her husband. As he's kissing down her breasts and chest, we see her hand reach up, brandishing a pair of scissors. After a moment, she plunges it into the back of his neck, and we see blood pour out of his mouth and onto her hips. Yeah, there's so much blood. She lifts him off of her and pulls down his pants and uh, plunges the scissors into his crotch uh, repeatedly, though again, this happens... The actual impact is off screen. I hadn't. There is something in this that I hadn't noticed before: is that she still has her wedding ring on. Oh yeah. While she's doing all that, and that's pretty cool. That's a nice little detail. Yeah. Yeah. We cut to Mrs. Johnson looking at her husband's corpse. We see more flashbacks to them in the past and them making out. We zoom out and uh, she is naked on the couch, clutching her purple wrap. Uh, this is that shot that was taken for the front of Stephen Thrower's book in that uh, Vampiro's Lesbos album. Yes. She cries and writhes and continues to look at the corpse and uh, see flashbacks. She finally gets up and sits on the edge of the bed and kisses her husband's rotting lips. She tells him it's all over now. The two of us will just go away together. We'll start over. She kisses his chest and body. We then cut to Dr. Donan getting in the back of a car that pulls off and drives down the road. He gets some shots of a beach. And then he walks into a place, uh, his home apparently, and there he finds his wife dead on the ground. Yeah, she's done for. Donan gets down and looks at her. She's bleeding. He gets up distraught. He says, my wife, which is our indication that it was his wife. Yeah, um, yeah. until he yelled that, I was like, who is this? Uh, she is not mentioned again. No, or before. <laughs> right. Um, well, she's mentioned passingly in a second. We, we see Mrs. Johnson descend the steps of his house. He asks, why did my wife have to die too? And that's it. Um, she approaches him and puts her hand on top of his head. Cut away from that to the inspector, who is way behind on this investigation. Uh, he's looking at Dr. Crawford's body. And then the inspector, or the medical examiner, says that she suffocated with a pillow or something like that. There must have been a struggle. There are scratches all over the body. Must have been the same killer. Then somebody comes in and says to the inspector that they just brought in another person. Uh, them having found Dr. Houston's body. Mm -hmm. uh, but his response to that in typical Jess Franco... Uh, the script's all fucked up, and who knows how this was edited, man. Yeah. He then notes that only Dr. Houston survives, and they need to keep an eye on him. Yeah. Um, and it's definitely not like a mistake in the subtitles. You hear Houston's name used. Right, so. yeah. Um, yeah, just a, a goof of the script. Yeah, Stephen Thrower pointed that out as well. Um, yeah, I, I caught that in my notes as well. I think it's pretty obvious. But, uh, uh, but it could also just be... 
he's so behind and doesn't know what he's doing right. that he just doesn't know who's alive and who's dead. Right. He has been busy not working. He's <laughs> just been um, throwing darts in his office, smoking <laughs> a cigar with his legs up on his desk. <laughs> He notes there's a madman on the loose. So we cut from there to Dr. Donan tied to a chair. Mrs. Johnson is across the room laying on a bed and watching him. He's out of it. She opens her wrap and approaches him, saying he must suffer. She's topless, wearing a garter belt, some thigh highs, and a pair of panties. She kneels down next to him and starts to kiss him as she brandishes a knife and drags it down his chest, producing blood. Here's where you see the blood spurt out of the knife, by oh, the way. Okay. Yeah. Franco's so sweaty when he's tied to this chair. Yeah, he is. He doesn't look very well. She kisses and licks his chest and then kisses him, and uh, she pulls up the knife, hovering it over him as music kicks back in. She gets in front of him and seemingly carves the knife down into his cock, yeah. She then slaps him a bit and says her husband will rest easier once he's dead, and then she stabs him. She runs out of there and gets into her car, uh, and in the passenger seat of the car is her husband. Yeah, so she can take the uh, carpal lane. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she says, not long from now, we'll be dead. And then we watch her as she drives her car off of the road, and it's treated like she drove it off a cliff, but really she just kind of drove it into some really rough terrain. Yeah, it, it rolls to a gentle uh, stop, and she dies. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, the inspector arrives to finally do his job, and yeah. then he just found them dead. And, uh, in fact, he didn't even find them dead. It was like two patrol cops yeah. approach it, and they're like, oh, it's uh, Mrs. Johnson and Dr. Johnson. Because apparently they know who it is. Yeah. And uh, say that they're both dead. Yeah, I was waiting for maybe the car to, like, roll to the bottom and then they would blow it up or something, but that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, that was not within the budget. It's just, it rolls to the, like, kind of like the bottom of, like, a ditch or, like, a, maybe like a sandy kind of, like, shore area. Right. Where it gets lodged and then stops. <laughs> right. And she dies. The inspector notes that Mrs. Johnson was a normal woman, and if not for her husband's death, she never would have committed these crimes. And then the film abruptly ends. Yeah. Um, his character was extraneous except for having to deliver that line yeah. to tie it all up. <laughs> yeah, otherwise he could have just not been in the movie at all. Like, yeah. He's in a couple scenes, and I mean, he works in those scenes, but yeah. there was no point to those scenes. He's got that Ed Wood cop energy yeah. <laughs> yeah he does yeah uh so yeah that was she killed in ecstasy so we'll take a quick break and then we'll give our final thoughts on she killed in ecstasy All right, we're back on the Raincoat Report to 
give our thoughts on She Killed in Ecstasy. So, Jeremy, do your thing. It's time. Okay. Hello. Hello. Hello, Hello. Jeremy. It's good to see you again. It's good to be back on the show. I'm glad to have you on this episode. Yeah, me too. Those ones that don't have me are not very good. No. Um, There hasn't been an episode that we did without you that was good. (laughs) Um, She Killed in Ecstasy is a top-notch erotic thriller and maybe one of the the crowning gems in Franco's beautiful multifaceted crown. Uh, I don't know. There's a lot to like about it. It's got a pretty simple but compelling story of a woman who seeks revenge for uh, the unjust death of her lover. Yeah. And uh, much like like Tarantino's Kill Bill series, she goes about getting her revenge in spectacular fashion. She does. Um, This also kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, maybe like Theater of Blood or uh, the Dr. Fibes movies a little bit and that kind of... uh, revenge killing it's not as uh i think creative and set pc as those because they had bigger like slightly bigger budgets i think those are both like american international pictures so the budgets probably weren't huge yeah but um it's got some of that vibe to it uh it looks great yeah yeah uh it's got all the signature franco tricks like zooming in um, it does have a lot more cuts in it than something like Cries of Pleasure, which I enjoyed. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think it's just a real, really well-made film. Uh, I think the plot is pretty, it's pretty tight. Yeah. Uh, there's not a lot of like loose ends or things that are too confusing that never get answered. Um, I like seeing Soledad Miranda. I know she didn't have a very long career, but uh, she's very attractive, very competent uh, actress, very good actress, actually. Very, a lot of excellent skill with her uh, face. Yeah. She's got a a face that uh, only a mother could love. (laughs) No, wait, that's me. Um,. We've definitely got faces made for podcasting. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the music doesn't quite fit the overall tone of the film. Yeah. But, as I've said several times, it's not bad. It would work, I think, better if it was in, like, a Radley Metzger, like, romantic comedy. Yeah, yeah. I think it would be the perfect soundtrack for that. Yeah. <laughs> for this, maybe something with a little more tension would have been the way to go. Yeah, yeah. Uh but that said, there's nothing really at place here. You see all the Franco greats pretty much in one place, mm-hmm. including the man himself in a pretty big role. Normally, he has like a role where he doesn't speak very much. If he yeah. does, he's overdubbing someone else usually, or he's kind of quiet and disfigured. Like, uh, didn't he play Morpho in Vampiros Lesbos? Yes. Okay. Yeah, he, he plays a few uh, henchman, henchman roles. Yeah, so he's got more of a he here. He's only a henchman of the medical establishment, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But no, a lot, a lot of fun. I was very engaged with it the whole time, which sometimes is a little difficult with Franco films. Okay. You can kind of feel yourself wandering in and out of attention, mm-hmm. uh, especially on the ones where like the plot's a lot looser and. Yeah, this one didn't have a lot of long sex scenes. Yeah, um, and that's fine. Um, as we said at the top, it's more of an erotic thriller. Right. I would give this one uh, four stars. Okay. I very much enjoyed it. I think it's uh, one of the good, better Franco uh, films I've seen just in general. Uh, it's up there for me with stuff like Eugenie and Venus and Furs in terms of uh, enjoyable, exciting filmmaking. All it's right. not as uh, delirious as like the erotic rites of Frankenstein or Fallowcrest. Right. But uh, it's probably better movies than those in general. I think this is something you could probably show like a normie and they would not be left completely confused. Yeah, I could definitely (laughs) see that. Yeah, I mean, this is a really good movie. Um, I appreciate a lot about it. Uh, Mm -hmm. Of course, Soledad Miranda... (laughs) Soledad Miranda's only in a handful of Jess's films uh, due to her untimely death not too long after this. Um, But she definitely has some film-stealing roles, and this is certainly one of them. I mean, of course, she's written to be the lead, but um, her acting here really gives a lot of weight to this film that could easily not be there if somebody else was in this role um so there's a lot of good there um the soundtrack i agree the soundtrack is good if not quite fitting to this film um there is a pretty solid storyline here i mean it does that thing where at a certain point it becomes episodic in the sense that like she's just following the same pattern killing people but she Mm -hmm. does it different ways and it's entertaining and like you know it's not like every slasher in the world doesn't do the same yeah and i like the way she stalks her prey yeah in general she shows up in bars and kinds of kinds that kind of tries to seduce them first yeah just pretty cool um as a method instead of just following them and stabbing them in an alley right right it's uh it's a pretty cool method yeah um a lot of it's really well shot like yeah yeah um i think you mentioned a couple shots the one where she enters and kind of terrorizes houston like through like that mirror reflection itself i think that's really good that's one of those things that'll stick with me for a while um i'm sure lots of films do that but the way it was done here was uh yeah, do a little chef's kiss. It's beautiful. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's there's a lot to love here. I would say that based off of the choice of music and the sh- fairly short length of the sex scenes and most of the scenes in general, it doesn't have quite as much of that psychedelia that Vampiros Lesbos had. Mm-hmm. Um, which isn't to say that that's a bad thing or a good thing. It's just a difference between the two. Um, this one certainly has the more well-defined plot and functions more as a standard movie. And like you said, I think that like the average viewer could watch this and point out some weird things about it, but it's a much more mainstream-friendly film than yeah. uh, Shining Sex or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. 
uh, or fallow crest. <laughs> I feel like Shining Sex a year on. I feel like I passed through that fog in that movie, and I can only vaguely remember impressions of it. <laughs> and then I'm just horny all the time. <laughs> well, that's good enough. Yeah, uh, it's it's quite something. <laughs> Um, and this film is quite something as well, but it's a different sort of thing. Uh, I do think that, like, from a general cinema look, this is probably a more functionally complete film than something like Vampiros Lesbos. But for my taste in films, I prefer something like Vampiros Lesbos. Mm -hmm. uh, something a little... I wouldn't say that it's more off the chain than this because it's not really but yeah. it's got more of that psychedelia feel it leans into that really hard and there's more sexuality to it yes um, which you know based on the subject of our podcast it is worth noting that this film wasn't as heavily sexy as most of the other ones we've covered maybe uh love letters of a portuguese nun yeah i think that there's a little more sex here than that but yeah the sex in this is there's not as much of it but it doesn't make me feel as bad as the sex in uh love letters of a portuguese nun that's fair yeah it, this is a, a more fun film even though it is about death and revenge yeah um but overall i think it's really good i think people should check it out I'm more of a Vampiros Lesbos guy. I would give this three and a half stars. Okay. Well, we're going to have a knife fight now. <laughs> All right. So, uh, you know, if you subscribe to our Patreon, maybe you'll hear us have a knife fight. Or a knife fight and an ass-fucking contest. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, to our Patreon subscribers, uh, we should have a new episode exclusive up on our Patreon this Friday. Yep. And if you're not subscribed, you should do it. Uh, Patreon.com slash Raincoat Report. Yep. Check it out. Two new, two bonus episodes every month. Early access to new episodes. Ad-free old episodes. Um, you can also check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Raincoat Report. And that's really about it for our social media plugs. We're plugging away there. Um, is, there is there any way I can publish just unedited pictures of the patreon we will see okay we'll, if not, we'll be back about it i'm working on something to where i would like to i take a lot of screens and stuff and i don't get to post most of them and i think it would be nice for fans to maybe get a look at some of that stuff so, so there's a thing with the patreon terms of service uh -huh. where if you post any nude material of people you have to have like the rules say that you have to have their like written consent okay. or something oh. but i don't know if like we link to like a imger yeah i'm thinking gallery an imger or something, or something like, that. like that so be on the lookout for that we'll it's, see yeah it'll be something i'm gonna i'm gonna work on and boss will throw it up into the ether yeah, we'll figure it out. Yeah, but uh, I try to make a little bang for your buck, you know? Yeah. So, I guess that'll about do it for us here this week on the Raincoat Report. Um, if you're going to go out killing, do it in style. Don't forget your raincoat, and don't forget your ecstasy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 